Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak to the leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Uma Valetti, founder and CEO of Upside Foods, the first company to get FDA approval for a meat product grown directly from animal cells. I'm delighted to welcome him to the Minor Consult to discuss his journey from cardiologist to entrepreneur, how he led his company to pioneer a groundbreaking approach to producing meat without taking the lives of animals, and what comes next as Upside Foods prepares to take their FDA-approved product to consumers later this year. Uma, welcome. It's great to have you here today. Dr. Minor, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and please call me Lloyd. And um, we're both physicians, and you're a cardiologist, and I'm curious if you could start out by talking about your journey to medicine and how you were attracted to become a physician, then train as a cardiologist, and then we'll talk about your transition to being an entrepreneur. But what got you interested in being a physician in the first place? Well, it was all I dreamed about since I was a kid. Um, always wanted to be a cardiologist, and I was pretty clear that I wanted to train at the Mayo Clinic. And I think that came from me following my grandfather, who was a physician, and I loved what he did. You know, he he was in the uh, freedom movement for India and uh, in the Gandhian movement, and he offered free medical services to people throughout his life. And I used to see people that came in didn't have access to healthcare elsewhere, and he would treat them for free. And I just thought that was the best thing that could do you know, that I could do when I grew up. And as I started learning more and more about the field of medicine, I had lots of cousins, my sister, all of them went to, ended up becoming doctors. And I was like, I, I, I want to be a doctor, but I want to do m- matters of the heart that are related to life and death. And I felt like there was a certain level of satisfaction when you take care of someone who you know, who is literally at the edge of death. And uh, you work on them, you bring them back, the level of satisfaction. I saw that very early on in my career, and I thought that's what I wanted to be, and that started my journey to becoming a cardiologist. I grew up in India. My dad's a veterinarian. My mom taught physics. And I grew. Uh, I, I got into one of the top medical schools in India, and right after graduating, I decided that I'll come to uh, the Mayo Clinic for training, and that's that's how I ended up. Uh, at the Mayo Clinic. Great, and and you were a practicing physician for for many years before you took your career in a different direction. So, what made you start questioning society's consumption of meat? And then, what made you realize that we had the science to bring meat to our tables without taking the lives of animals? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, all my life I wanted to be a cardiologist. And uh, here I was at the Mayo Clinic training at the best place that I could have imagined and doing all kinds of procedures and solving some important diagnostic dilemmas. But there was one thing that, you know, as a child growing up, that was always a part of me. I grew up in a meat-eating family. I loved eating meat. Like I said, my dad's a veterinarian. I was always around animals. And I had this experience when I was a 12-year-old boy. I went to my friend's birthday party next door to me and that's when I went for the first time and I saw the, f- I came face to face with the paradox of meat. And l- let me explain what that is for me. In the front of the house, we were celebrating my friend's birthday. There was dancing, there was you know, music, there was great food. And I went to the back of the house and that's where they were slaughtering the animals to feed the people in the front. 
And to me, that was a, a really important moment because I saw intense happiness and love and joy in front of the house. And the back of the house, there was intense amount of suffering and all happening at the same moment. There was a birthday and there was a death day. And the duality of that just kind of stuck with me for a very long time. And at some point, I thought it would go away. But as I grew up, it intensified even more and more and more. And I kept eating meat. But finally, in medical school, I was running our cafeteria. I went to um, the market with the chef to buy a lot of uh, you know food and chickens for making tandoori uh, chicken and chicken tikka masala. And that's where I saw, the, for the first time in my life, large-scale animal slaughter. And I'm like, oh, this is intense and really hard. And that's the day I said, okay, I'm going to stop eating meat. But ever since, every single day after that, I missed the taste of meat. I loved eating meat. And, you know, very long story, circuitous path through cardiology. But here I was at the Mayo Clinic. We were working on stem cells. And we were looking to see if they can be injected into the patient's hearts to regrow the heart muscle when they had a heart, heart attack or a cardiac arrest. And later on in my practice in the Twin Cities, I was doing exactly that. And that's where this idea came from, of could you grow meat directly from animal cells? And if so, what would that look like? And once that idea got into my head, it was really hard to get it out because I'm like, this is something that has a paradigm-changing effect on the food system because we could raise animal cells instead of animals we could do it with much less resources, and we could do it with less environmental in impact. And I, the more and more I thought about it, I thought this is an idea that needs to be explored, not by me, but anybody out there who wanted to really create paradigm change. So I started asking lots of people, why don't you start companies in this space? The science is there. I had a basic science lab, um, and I was injecting these cells into patients' hearts. I was imaging them with MRIs later on to see if the cardiac function improved. And I was encouraging any scientist I could see to start a company in this space. And they were all like, this is great. We've been talking about this in academia for a long time. But it was very high risk. And I think it was good to talk about and do some projects in the academic labs. But I couldn't convince anyone to start a company in the space to make real change. And I kept complaining about that to my wife and kids all the time. I think they got fed up with me finally. And they said, Dad, why are you not doing it? And, and that kind of become the clarion call for me. And so I wrote to one venture capitalist along with my co-founder, who was my postdoc in the lab. And within an hour of writing to them, they immediately called and said, would you be able to move the company to the Bay Area? And that's what started the journey in 2015 when no companies in this space existed. So that's, our, that's literally how this idea originated. And it was from restlessness from me, my family getting tired of it, and me thinking, I could have a great impact as a cardiologist practicing for the next 30 years, saving about 3,000 lives. Or if this idea works, we could positively impact billions of human lives and save trillions of animal lives. And it was something I could not look back and say I passed on this idea because I thought it was too risky. Well, that's such an inspiring story. As you indicated, in 2015, you created your startup, uh, Memphis mm -hmm. Meats, which is now Upside Foods. And it was the first company uh, focused on growing real meat directly from animal cells. Now there are more than 150 companies in this space. 
what made you decide to leave your career in cardiology and take this pioneering next step? And maybe how did it feel uh, doing it? Was it was it frightening, exhilarating, or all all of the above? <laughs> um, well, it's been seven years, and I can tell looking back, I don't regret a moment of it, but I didn't have that hindsight at that point. All I felt was this incredible desire and uh, a purpose that was leading me towards saying nearly everybody I spoke to said it's impossible to do and it's not achievable. That just ended up motivating me more and saying, look, we've never done this in the history of humanity, but what if it's, this works? And, and I think there was too much. It was just like, you know, when you, when you have patients that you just feel like, there's something you're not getting. You need to get the answer. You're going into PubMed and searching libraries and talking to colleagues and getting two, three, four opinions because you just don't want to give up on that patient. I kept experiencing that almost every single day. I would wake up in the morning and keep saying this should be solved. And once I realized, look, this is, knowing myself, I'm like, unless I go and confirm for myself this is not impossible, I'm not going to be able to sleep. So that was the level of restlessness I had. Therefore, moving away from cardiology, I've never looked back. I left a profession I loved. I, lit, I mean, I was at the cutting edge of cardiology, doing interventional procedures and advanced imaging procedures, had a basic science lab, was with the American Heart Association and the College of Cardiology. And I, I loved my colleagues and my job, but I felt like if we didn't start this, then there would be a big part of me that would be missing. And I felt like... This was a risk completely worth taking. I was fortunate to have my wife and kids support it. And since then, fortunate to have enormous amounts of investors, stakeholders, team members who left their careers to make this a movement that at this point has gone well beyond anyone's dreams. Like you said, there's 150 companies in this space. There is, for the first time ever, undergrad and PhD programs in every major food and ag university. And regulators across the world are looking to bring cultivated meat into their countries. So lots of progress in a very short period. And uh, you know, my, my, my experience on this is we are given a limited amount of time, and that limited amount of time should be used towards pursuing your North Star. It was patient care for the first 10 years of my life, professional life. And I think for the next 10 years and beyond, however long this takes, this is a purpose that's going to keep leading me. That's wonderful. Let's take a step back, step back for a moment and talk about the global context. The world's meat consumption is poised to skyrocket in the future. And we know mm. that there are many significant environmental and public health hazards associated with raising livestock. In light of these challenges, what problems do you believe cultivated meat is best positioned to solve? Yeah, it's a great question. When you step back and look at the global context, I'll just set the table. In the history of humanity, meat has always been the center of almost every culture, every tradition in the world. It is something that we've grown up with. Our palates are very well calibrated to recognize meat. And there's something about it that when we have an extra dollar to spend, we'll go out and buy meat to feed our family because it has high value, high protein. And if you look at the consumption of meat, it's been consistently, consistently growing, going up and up and up and up without any signs of slowing down. And 
today, if we just look at the numbers for today on the impact of meat and how big the impact is and how devastating it is, because we love eating meat so much, there's four things to look at. We look to feed about seven and a half billion people. We have to raise about 75 billion animals every year right now. And in order to raise those animals, you need to use about a third of all the fresh water in the world and a third of all the arable land to grow crops to feed the animals to feed the humans. 14.5% of all the greenhouse gases in the world are released from animals raised for food. And the projection is the demand for meat is doubling by the time we hit 10 billion people, by the time we get to 2050. So that means we've got to put another 75 billion animals on the planet. So a total of 150 billion animals. There is no space for it. There is no resources for it. And it's going to be, COVID was fearful and fearsome and, you know, I lost my dad in COVID. Those events are going to get more and more frequent. The risk of health for communities are going to get worse. But I do think the answer here is not to ration meat or ask people to become vegetarian or vegan. The answer is how can we fill that demand with the production method that leaves the product we love on the table? But with a different process we can bring forward that is a lot less intense on the environment and animal welfare, and they're, they're in the risks for health for the communities. And that's where cultivated meat comes in. And I'm very optimistic about cultivated meat because for the first time ever, we can actually put the same product on the table that comes from animal cells, which are the building blocks of all the meat we eat. So here's how it works. We take high-quality cells from a young animal or adult animal or from eggs, and we identify the cells that continue to divide as they're dividing in an animal's body every 24 hours or so. And we develop a breed of cells that are high quality. And we develop the feed that an animal is eating, a combination of fats and proteins and sugars and vitamins and minerals. We develop a feed that is very similar to that so those animal cells can eat them. And we put them in a clean environment, very similar to a brewery, um, a clean environment where you can monitor the temperature, the pH, and you know, the health of the cells. And they grow for about two to four weeks. And at the end of two to four weeks, you have really high-quality, delicious meat that you can make into any product we love. And compare that with two years for raising a cow, about a year for raising a pig, or two to three months for a chicken, much shorter. Therefore, less resources are used. Therefore, less greenhouse gas emissions are produced. And less water is needed. And that opens up the ability to have lots of places that cannot grow meat for themselves in the future, be able to do it, even if they have scarcity of resources. And we have the ability to not have the level of greenhouse gas emissions go out. And guess what? The animal welfare issue is also solved. So that's the potential for cultivated meat. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done because we're still in its infancy. But the work in the last six years has created a movement that the industry has never seen before. I think there's a lot more chapters to be written. But that's, that's really what you know, motivates us to keep going because now we have a track record of doing things that people said were impossible. Uma, over the course of now nearly eight years, uh, Upside Food has refined the process for cultivated meat. And in the past months, your product was the first to be cleared for human consumption by the FDA. 
You're now working on labeling it with the USDA, huh. and you expect the product to reach consumers later this year. Along the way, Upside has endured some turbulent times in the U.S. economy with key moments for your company happening throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about those and also talk to us about how you steered the company through these turbulent times? Yes, this is probably the part that is absolutely not glamorous at all. These are the realities of taking an idea and taking it into the world when the world is not ready for it or heard about it and trying to build it and build it from the grassroots and building from the building blocks. So the last eight years has been just, you know, one hurdle after another thrown at us at every single stage. So let's think about the first two years, 2015, 2016. No one heard about this field. No one knew about this field. Investors were not used to putting a single dollar into this field. And people were never thinking about spending their careers going into an uncertain field. So the first two years was very, very different and difficult in that, first of all, we had to have people believe that this is an idea that deserves a chance. And all we were looking at that point was a chance. It was an idea on paper. There was no proof. There was no evidence the science works. So the first two years was all about getting the science to work and show that we can grow high-quality beef from cells from a cow. The minute we did that and did the first public demonstration of a beef meatball with the first 50 grams of beef we ever grew, that was the most valuable 50 grams in the history of this industry. Because we took it, we did a public tasting, and we put it out in the public you know, domain on social media. And that just caught fire. We had closed our seed round by then, and we had funding to hire about nine people. With those nine, we said, what's the most important thing we can do? And we said, let's just prove the science works with a different species because no one's going to invest just for beef. They want to know this actually works and can scale. So we said, the most popular protein in the world is chicken and duck. And we've shown it works in mammals. Let's show it'll work in birds. And while doing that, we found chickens were very different than cows. And evolutionarily, they were you know, you know hundreds of millions uh, of years earlier than a cow. So we had to learn that. But we did prove we can grow chicken and duck in 2017. And that brought an incredible set of investors forward who said, this is an answer that we can think of getting behind because we understand it's a long road. And these are investors who understood how long it took for electrification of our, uh, transportation, or they understood how long it took to get to space. And they, they knew that this is one of those types of innovations that needed to be funded. So that brought a big tent of investors together. Uh, we had investors who are financial investors the same investor who wrote the Series A check for Tesla and SpaceX led our round. Then we had impact investors like uh, Jack and Susie Welsh and you know Gates and Branson and Kimball Musk join us for environmental, animal welfare reasons. And we had people that were industry incumbents like Tyson and Cargill who came in. And that was not easy to assemble. It was the first time investors with hardcore meat eaters, financial interests, impact investors and you know hardcore vegans came together to fund a single company and we're like okay we're onto something but getting people to leave their careers and join this company was not easy and in the last four years the second phase is all the last four years it was a big blur because every single time we were going to go and do a financing round 
we had to show what we were doing. And the second step was to show we can bring costs down because it's very expensive to do it. So we had a model and we had investors come and test the model. And this happened right amidst the lots of, there's a lot of skeptics for the field. There's a thousand reasons why this industry could fail. And some of the skeptics wrote a well thought out paper listed all the reasons why the industry would fail. And the in investors came in, brought the paper, and did the diligence against all of those things and said, okay, we know you have a hard path ahead, but we believe in the path you are taking as a team, we'll fund you. So that was our first $200 million raise. Mm -hmm. Then COVID hit. We had shut the company down and we had to continue to make progress. And that's when personally I had a hurdle. My dad uh, contracted COVID. My mom recovered, but my dad did not uh, recover. And it was all before vaccines came out. And I want to thank Stanford for the work you did for the vaccines, for sure, because I was following all your recommendations. I was able to get on a plane and see my dad in the last few days before he passed away. And it was an incredible moment because he was the biggest supporter for us. And seeing that happen through COVID and part of the reason was the risk of zoonotic diseases spreading. We used to talk about this all the time. And that became a, you know, something that was very hard to get past. But I knew that you know, this was something that was important. So it came back and we finished construction of our production facility on time during COVID without having any team member being affected. We opened that about a year ago. And that's become a showcase site for people to come and see how meat can be made in the future. And we are still in the early stages of doing small scale, medium scale, large scale production and industrial scale, but we can do it all under one roof. And that led us to the next set of financing saying, let's go and build a much larger facility. And the economy started collapsing last year. <clears throat> and there were more papers that were written on why this industry would not succeed. So the next set of investors read all those papers and came and did a very deep diligence on us and came back on the other side saying, we think you have a chance. And those are hurdles that we have to get through every single time as pioneers, because when this has never been done before, there is a lot more skeptics in the world than there are believers. And it's up to us to convince that unless we believe in the reasons why this is successful and the fact that it's inevitable, you won't get there. You've already lost before you tried. And that's been a proven thing for us over and over. And that's been fantastic, you know, to see that happen. And my experience as a physician, I think, helped a lot in being, to, in being able to stay, be stable through all of these ups and downs. And I owe a lot of that for my medical training. You know, it, it, among the skeptics are also likely to be some consumers that mm -hmm. may be wary that uh, of meat produced through laboratory technology. And what reactions have you encountered and what questions have you heard? And as you're starting to roll your product out uh, at restaurants and other places, mm -hmm. what what's your target customer like? And uh, how do you see expanding the business uh, to a larger scale based upon your initial target customers? Um, look, the, the one of the biggest moments in the history of the industry is the FDA green light that Upside Foods got about two months ago. <coughs> Excuse me. Can I repeat this? Sure. <coughs> Um, one of the most important things and a landmark moment in the history of the industry is 
the FDA green light that came about two months ago. It is such a watershed moment for one simple reason, because the Food and Drug Administration had been working with us for the last several years, and after a very detailed and thorough examination, concluded that the upside chicken is safe to eat for consumers and agreed with our conclusion that it could be part of a rich and nutritious and healthy diet. So that's the first part, because there's a very detailed analysis that the FDA did. Now, when we start talking about bringing it to the world, we have one more step to complete with the regulators, which is the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, will have to inspect our facility and give us a grant of inspection and also give us the label that we can put on the meat when we bring it to the market or bring it to the restaurants. We're working on the steps right now, and we're very optimistic that we'll complete them very in the near future. And right after that, we're going to go into restaurants. And, and you know, I'm really excited to say that the first restaurant we'll be launching at is in the Bay Area. It's uh, a chef named Dominique Crenn. Uh, she's the only three Michelin star female chef in the country and one of the five in the world. She's a French economist who came here, and her passion was cooking and, 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 and delicious uh, uh, food. She said she was going to take meat off her menu because she couldn't get behind how meat was coming to the table and took it off the menu of all her restaurants in 2018. We met her during COVID, and she came and visited us and tasted our meat and said, this meat is incredibly delicious. Reminds me of the chickens in France called La Belle Rouge that she grew up eating. She said, I want to bring it to my restaurant. Can I work with you and put it on our menu? So the first restaurant we'll be launching at is at uh, Dominique Crenn. It's at Atelier Crenn and Bar Crenn group of restaurants in San Francisco. And we are talking to a number of chefs who are very interested in bringing upside chicken to their menus, and we'll release more information as we get there. That's really exciting. We'll, we'll look forward to hearing more about when, when it rolls out in, in the restaurants. Now, some startups leverage existing technologies to establish new applications or uh, new lines of business while others introduce a fundamentally new way of looking at the world. And Upside is very much in that fundamentally mm -hmm. new way of looking at the world category. Now, how do you approach a startup differently when your goal is to transform and to bring about an aspirational idea and take it to reality? And you talked a little bit about this before, but maybe you could talk more about who you had to bring on board in order to make this vision to happen and who you're still having to bring on board. Yes, it's a great question because we are learning as we go, but we know that there are some fundamental pillars on which this innovation will need to rest on. And because this is food, because this is very familiar, and we recognize high-quality food right away, it all starts with having people that know how to cook food, taste food, so we have chefs and food scientists on the team that are always looking at the meat we are harvesting and trying to test it and saying, is this going to meet a consumer's uh, you know, uh, ability to love it and replace where they're getting it from now or add to it? So that's one group of uh, people on our team. They represent the art and science of food and what it means to us as consumers. And I think it all starts and ends there. There are three other you know, pillars that we look at. One is biology. This is, we, are, we have a group of, you know, biologists, embryologists, stem cell biologists, molecular biologists, tissue engineers, all of whom are focused on one single thing, which is how do we build the best breed of animal cells? 
and they're developing the best breeds of animal cells from the samples we take from animals. And we have the largest library of animal cells and species in the world. The second group is people who just love chemistry and, and nutrition and food. And these are organic chemists, inorganic chemists and chemical engineers who basically are breaking down the components of the feed for the animal cell and saying, let's develop the best quality ingredients that are traceable so we know what's getting into the feed for the meat and we know the entire chain of where it was grown and how the mix actually finally gives the best taste and the texture that we need when the animal cell consumes the, the feed. The third group and the final group are the engineers. Now that includes the group of chemical engineers, process engineers, automation engineers, and mechanical engineers who are helping us develop the clean environments in which the meat is growing. And, and then we harvest it after it's grown for two to four weeks. So these are the groups of people that we've assembled so far. And normally these groups never work together. So each of them have different languages. Biologists talk one language, chemists talk one language, and engineers talk a different language, and then the creatives and the food scientists talk a different language. So we are having them all work together in a melting pot of ideas, which is a really you know, fun place to be, and developing our own vocabulary of describing cultivated meat and the food and and, and that this is so far from a lab, because in the past, this was all called lab-grown meat. But the nomenclature has changed significantly, because w where we grow meat now looks like a brewery. And the meat that people are cooking is just like the meat that they're going to be using or taking off a package from a supermarket or when they go to a restaurant, how it looks on a plate. So we wanted to create a distinct category of what it's called. So a consumer knows that it is real meat. It's not a plant-based or you know, meat alternative. It's real meat. And a category that distinctly says we are growing it. So cultivated meat is the name that everybody in the world is using for it now. And that's kind of where we uh, are, are starting when we go into the market. And we think as the industry grows, there will be different grades of meat, just like you know, U.S. meat has prime and you know, other kinds of gradings that is there on right. meat. We'll have the same for cultivated meat. Fantastic. Well, Uma, I want to end with two questions that I ask all my guests. First, what do you think are the most important qualities for a leader today? Hmm. I, look, I will give you my perspective on this. I think when you say the word leaders, I think half the answer is on there. I, I, I believe great leaders are inspired and driven by a sense of purpose and they have a north star in them that is leading them towards that purpose. That gives them direction and they come up with ideas and what we need to do in order to get to the north star but a, a great leader truly has to motivate other people to get excited about that idea and be able to execute on the idea so we actually get to the finish line or try as hard as possible to get to the finish line and really try things that people say are impossible to get there. And along the process, I think that one of the most important things for leaders to, 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 to be recognized as leaders is they have to have followers. And these followers need to come from a very diverse group of stakeholders. So, and so what we call is the big tent. You have to bring a big tent of followers behind you and these, this group of people 
will have to recognize that the path ahead is not easy, but they develop that same inherent purpose and the North Star of what they're doing, where they're going. And this whole group develops by watching the leaders that they have to manage ex exceptional expectations. And in managing exceptional expectations, it's really important to make sure that leaders recognize that they're taking care of themselves and the people around them. And people who watch them recognize that that's what they're doing every day. And they start doing it. And therein is how you build a movement that becomes you know, what a leader can say you're leading to the purpose that, 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 that's leading them towards their North Star. So I think the most important quality is being able to recognize that there is that inherent North Star and that you can actually have followers who can help execute on that for you. So that's, that's my personal experience. And here's what happens when that leadership is manifest. We end up achieving things that nearly everybody thinks are impossible to do. And my second question is, what gives you hope for the future? <laughs> well, I'll talk it in the context of Upside Foods because that's where my life is right now sure. and I think for the foreseeable future. Um, if I look back seven or eight years ago, I think only a handful of people gave me hope saying this is an incredibly important idea. You should not look back. A group of that was my family, but there's an early group of friends and, and investors that came around and said, we'll support you. Now, what gives me hope is there's a whole lot of people across about 150 companies and you know 25 countries, lots of universities and investors and media and engineers and other people that are professionals that are building their careers in this field and recognizing that just the impact of us thinking about the act of eating meat could actually be a force for good. And people believing that can happen, that when we eat meat every single time we can display care for ourselves, the planet, and the animals, that gives me a lot of hope. And broadly, if I step back, just the fact that I, can, I honestly believe from my own experience now that when humans come together behind a purpose that seems impossible to do, magical things happen. And I feel like that's what gives me hope to keep going back when there's lots of hurdles ahead of us. And, and uh, I, you know, that, that's my honest answer. That's, that's wonderful. Uma, thank you very much. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Uma Valetti, founder and CEO of Upside Foods. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind. <music>